0: In just a few moments, I'm going to read you some verses from 1 John, as God calls us to worship. Before I do that, think about this question. Do you ever have moments where you feel like you're not who you should be? As you look back over this past week, anything happened that made you realize in new ways, you know, maybe I'm not who I should be whether you felt pressure from work to just produce more, whether something happened at home and you realize, man, I did not handle that the way I should. I'm not who I should be. When we gather for worship, we need to be reminded that God made all things good, that we rebelled against him, and that Jesus is redeemed, has redeemed and is restoring all things. Every week, we need to be reminded that we are part of that story, that really, who we should be is found in Jesus. Hear this from 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christ is returning. I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you feel free to turn there. The words are also printed in the bulletin. And if you're just visiting with us, uh, here's the framework for the entire year. Three, four, five. Three, four, five. If you understand what those numbers mean, then you'll understand what we're doing this entire year. Three stands for three loves. You see those loves print on the front side of your bulletin. Love God, love people, love the city, love the place. Three loves. Four-part story. John Paul has just worked that out at least twice for us, if not three times in the service. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. The Bible is a four-part story. Five threads. Five threads. Thread number one, and we find these threads from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation 22. Five threads. Thread number one, God has always had a people. He's always building his church. Genesis 3, Revelation 22. Everything in between. Two, sin is real. Evil is real. Never, ever gets the last word. Evil never gets the last word. Three, grace. 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 God pursues, initiates, and saves. Grace. Revelation 22 and back all the way through the scriptures, all the way back to Genesis 3. Grace. Four. he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. The greatest breakthrough in your life is not in your future. The greatest breakthrough of your life happened 2,000 years ago. Through the death and resurrection in history, Real events in Jesus. Was that four? Good. Glad you remember. I forgot. Five. Everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything. Everything in your life, my life, whether you're here thinking about Christianity, exploring it, here because you don't like it at all, or here because you're all in, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything. Time, history, my life, your life, our church, everything is moving toward Jesus. So that said, listen to this from Numbers 11, uh, the first six verses. By the way, have any of y'all ever heard a sermon series to the book of Numbers? Anybody ever heard a sermon on the book of Numbers? Anybody ever read the book of Numbers before? Some of you have? Okay, great. So when I read this to you, it might make no sense. My hunch is seems like it might make no sense at all. But we're going to pray after I read, and then we're going to try to understand it together. So don't, don't, don't be dis, too, dismissive too quick. Give us a chance to see if we can't make sense of what's here. Listen to this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that costs nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your, your word. Uh, Lord, this book can never be exhausted because it tells us of the greatest news that we could ever hear, that the greatest news that our world could ever hear. So help us to want to hear good news. Keep us from coming and thinking that we're going to get tips on how to make our life better or techniques on how to fix this or that. Help us to want to hear your message, the good news that you have for us. Help us to want to hear that. Lord, what I'm saying is work in our hearts so that we want to hear more about Jesus. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen. Here's the point of Numbers 11 through 14. Numbers 11, 1 through 6 is just a bigger piece of this section together. Here's the point that you can write down if you're a note taker. uh, Hopefully uh, you can depart remembering this perhaps maybe. I don't know. But at least this is what I'm going to show you from the passage. Here it is in one sentence. God is moving us from a people who complain to a people who live grace-shaped lives. God is changing us. From complaining to living a grace-shaped life, a life shaped by grace, however you want to say that. Make sense? Got it? So this whole chapter, God's moving us somewhere. We've got two points. The first is an overview, and the second is the bullseye. So we're going to start really big, and we're going to ultimately get into one narrow point, the bullseye. Hopefully the bullseye of the text together. Got it? So God's moving us from a people who complain to a people whose lives are great are shaped by grace. So here's an overview of Numbers for those of you that have never read it before, never heard of it till you walked in here. The original title of the book was In the Desert, the fourth or fifth word in the, in the Hebrew language of this text in verse 1. And when it was translated into Greek, they decided to take a Greek name for it, so they use a word that comes from the word that we get arithmetic, and that's how we get Numbers. But originally, it's actually, the title is the first few words of the text, In the Wilderness, in the Desert. So, chapters 1 through 21 are talking about God's people moving from Sinai to the wilderness of Paran. And they were following a cloud. Yes. As crazy as that sounds, maybe that whets your appetite to go read it. God's people are moving from Sinai to Paran. They're following a cloud. Chapters 22 through 36, what we find is they end up in Moab, and the king of Moab is named Balak. And what Balak does is summon this guy to help him named Balaam, and you read all about that. And then after that, we learn about the next gen, the next generation. So 22 through 36, Balaam Balak and the Next Gen. That's an overview of the entire book. And this morning we're thinking about 11 through 14, and I'll tell you why. Because as people were going from Sinai into the wilderness, and as the people were wandering around and not doing what they're supposed to do, and we have to hear about the next generation that's coming, everything hits the fan here in chapter 11. This is where everything hits the fan. So that's why we're focusing on that. So let's get into the story. Let's see if we can remember, if we can, if we can think about how faithful God has been to us, to our people, to his people, our spiritual ancestors. Remember, this is where we are in the story. God has always made good on his promises. He's always made good on his promises. He brought his people out of Egypt. And, let me say it this way. As you read through the Bible up to this point, what we remember, what we learn is this. There is no sin that is a match for God's grace. And there there is no captivity that can thwart God's plan. He has given promises to his people and he is making good on those promises. He brings his people out of Egypt and they end up at Mount Sinai in which the Ten Commandments are codified, in which people, the people of God are, remember, are reminded, hey, I've given myself to you. Now you give yourself to me. It's where they learned how to live lives of generosity and thoughtfulness, how the overflow of love that they've been receiving from God, they then overflow that out into their lives and who they come in contact with. And God also said... Not only do you need to know these laws, but I want you to build a tent, a place of meeting. And and this tent needs to be in the center of your existence. So the tabernacle, that gigantic tent was actually placed and built in the middle of the geographic region where God's people were, like in the center of their lives because they were supposed to have God as the center of their life. And everything was supposed to flow out from him. So they followed him. They they went out with his power. So God said, build this tent because I'm going to be with you. You're going to understand more and more of my presence with you. You're going to grow in that. So God's people did. And then if you look at the last few verses of chapter 10 of Numbers, what you find is this. God's people have been in Sinai for a year. And we pick up in chapter 11, three days into the journey. Three days into the journey. And notice what the text says. Three days into the journey, and the people complained. God has done all these things for them. It was a mixture of of being awesome and and epic, even though that word's overused. It was everything that they had experienced was incredible, and it was also terrifying and at the same time beautiful, and yet here they are three days later complaining. Now, here's a sidebar just so you know what happens after this. Things get a whole lot worse. Like what we're going to read and think about here in these verses is just the beginning. What happens after this is that God's people end up complaining about Moses And it even gets super personal. Moses' brother and sister-in-law complain about him to the people. So the people end up getting mad at Moses because his brother and sister-in-law are stirring them up to dislike Moses. And then what ends up happening is that the people don't even need, uh, like, um, encouragement. They just decide they're going to turn on Moses and Aaron. So they do that Twice. And then Moses feels like he can challenge God, so he actually raises his hand in some way saying that he's assuming authority over God, and Moses was never perfect, and God has to deal with Moses. You see, God takes all of this personally because he has appointed leaders, and he has set up how things should work. And not only that, but you get toward the end of the book, and what you find is that Spies were sent into the land that God was going to give them. And God's people say, we got to go check out this land before we go in there. So they sent spies and they they spent 40 days doing recon, figuring out what it's going to be like when they go into this new land, the land that God had promised them that now was coming true. And they decide after those 40 days of recon, after they come back and meet together, "Ah, we can't go. We can't go in there. And God says, for every day that you did recon, you will wander for a year. So you surveyed and did recon for 40 days, you're going to wander for 40 years. You see, this is the start of all of that mess. And here's what you have. They begin to complain. Look at what happens. The first three verses, they complain and God sends them warning signals. He sends fire on the outskirts of the camp because no one is there. He sends fire on the outer rims of their geographic region so that they understand, oh, God is hearing what we're doing. God knows that we're complaining You see, I think this is why the text says that God hears their complaining. It's not that they were directly talking to God and complaining. They were grumbling amongst themselves, and God heard it because he hears everything and sees everything about us. So they're complaining about things, and God hears it, and he says, you know, here's some fire at the end of your camp. Here's fire on this end of camp. Oh, I'm here. I'm alive. I see you. I hear you. And in the midst of that, Moses cries out to God and pleads for mercy. And God subsides. The fires subside. They have someone who's saying on their behalf, God, we've, we've messed up here. We haven't, we're not functioning the way we should. God, for your mercy's sake, remember you brought them out of Egypt. For your mercy's sake, forgive. And, of course, God does. Then look at verses 4 through 6. They complain again. And this time, things get a little bit more specific. Look at what verses four through six tell you. They say that God's people complain, we complain in this specific way God, we are tired of manna, we want meat. Now, remember, manna was something that God provided for them miraculously. If you want to know what manna was like, it's basically the equivalent of, uh, like, honey-dipped honey uh, crackers. I mean, there's a sweetness to it. Well, That means something to me. Maybe you don't have a sweet tooth, but I do. So, understanding a little bit more about manna and what it might taste like helps me understand and what's going on in the text and what people were actually eating. They were tasting something that was reasonably good. And here they are complaining, saying, God, we're tired of eating manna. We want meat. And then they start explaining that by telling God what things were like when they were in Egypt. Did you notice that in the text? But God, when we were in Egypt, we got leeks and we got onions and and we got cucumbers. We got melons. We got garlic. And it was, look at the text, it was free. Did you notice that? At no cost. At no cost. We got all of this food and now we're just stuck on manna. We got all these things and they had these different tastes. It was glorious and it was all free. But their existence wasn't But we had all this food, and it didn't cost us anything. And now you brought us here, and we have to eat this manna every day. This is horrible. Look at verse six. It gives you a very vivid description. The text says that their strength was died, was dried up. Did you catch that? What it literally says is their soul was dried up. Now hear now hear me. This is good. Okay, this is this is a good thing. They are looking at their lives. And they are connecting what's going on in their lives with their soul. That is a good thing. Okay? They are looking at what's happening in their lives and they are saying, that means something in my soul and in my relationship with God. That is really important. Because if you're here and you have no idea how to connect with God, you've got to look at your life and understand that everything that's happening is saying something about your soul. Now, like so often happens... God's people really miss it here just like we do, right? And they're saying, our soul is dried up, God. All we have is this manna to eat and and we have no strength. Not physical strength they're talking about. They had plenty of that. They're saying that, I just feel like I don't want to exist. If this is all that I've got to live on, I don't... I don't want to be in relationship with you. My soul is dried up. I don't have any strength anymore. It's kind of dramatic, isn't it? You know, wouldn't you say that's a little dramatic? Please, I hope you would say that's kind of dramatic. This is the best parallel I can give you in my own life. This would be like me saying... This would would be like me going to cookout after worship is over, and I get in line, and I get to order my favorite milkshake, chocolate and Reese's Cup milkshake, and they look at me and say, the milkshake machine is broken. It would be somewhere, what they're saying here, somewhere between me complaining about the milkshake machine at cookout being broken, and the reality that I have to make my bed every day when I get up. Their complaining is kind of that dramatic, and it gets even more. It's as if I would say, God, I can't believe that the milkshake machine is broken. I can't believe i got to make my bed every single morning. You must hate my soul. I hope that you would think that that's a little bit dramatic. That's exactly what's going on here. They're being dramatic, overly dramatic, even though they're being honest and perhaps truthful what they think they see. They're being overly dramatic. Look, can't we all relate to this? Can't we all relate to complaining? You know, usually when we complain, it starts with these kind of simple categories. Look at your life and see if any of this fits because we're not very different at all from those who were the original audience in Numbers 11. We are the people of God, you know. And here's how complaining begins to work out in our lives. I'll give you three quick categories, and maybe something in your life applies. Here's one category. (laughs) You know, the grass is greener over there. Think about that with work. Think about that with friends, relationships, spouse, schools, whatever it is. You know, I think the grass is greener over there. That's a form of complaining, isn't it? What I have right here isn't enough. The grass is, things are better over there. Here's another one in which we complain, how we evidence that we're complainers. You remember the good old days? Man, if I could just go back to when things were, you remember when everything was good in our life? Here's the third one. If I just had, fill in the blank, my life would be so much better if I just was able to experience this or if I just did that. My life would be so much better. Those are all ways in which we evidence that we complain, that it may be deep down in us we might all know that we shouldn't, but because we feel some level of shame about it, we don't really verbalize it. It's just there. See, we all have this deep-down sense of just this deep unhappiness. We're just not really happy people in general. Deep down, we're just not that happy. Matter of fact, it seems like there are lots of times when we prefer to just be unhappy. And we know that we don't want to stay miserable, but we don't exactly want to talk about it either, because we feel some level of shame. I mean, Just think about, and if the shoe fits, wear it in this list I'm going to give you. If the shoe fits, wear it. Think about it. Isn't this why we're always looking for some new toy? Because we got this deep down unhappiness. So we think we, think we need some new toy. And that, that will bring us out of our unhappiness and will somehow bring us into greater happiness. So we just look for a new toy. Maybe it's... Why we're constantly upset at our family or our spouse or with our children? Because we just have this deep down unhappiness. I think there's always a problem with our coworkers. It's why we're unhappy with our house. It's why we're unhappy with our car. It's why we have, I don't know, we just have a critical spirit. Because deep down we're so unhappy. So in some weird way, we try to derive some type of happiness through being critical about other people or other things that are going on. You realize a lot of times we can get a lot of, I don't know, satisfaction out of thinking that other people's condition shouldn't be what it is or is what it is. And somehow in a weird way, both of those can make us happy at times. Even the accomplishments that you have in your life, I bet if you look back at them, they never really brought what you thought they would. They didn't make you as happy as you thought and hoped that they would. And if we take the Bible at face value, this is what I want to say. If we take the Bible at face value, if we were put back in paradise, in the garden, we'd find something wrong with it. If we take the Bible at face value, that's what would happen because we have this deep spirit of complaining. You see, what God's people are doing here in Numbers 11 is this. What they think is, and we've struggled and fallen into this too, if I center my entire life on God, then somehow my life isn't going to be enough. If I center all that I am, including down to what I eat and should eat, on what God provides, if I center all that I am on God and depend on him alone and trust in what he says and center my feelings, my thoughts, my decisions, if I do all, if I center everything on him and let him completely define me, somehow my life is going to be kind of still miserable, And I might be able to make my life better if I just borrowed some from God, but then, you know, did my own thing. We all have that. We all think if we center our lives on God, it just won't be enough. And friends, we need to get to the bullseye because this chapter and this section of Numbers, it's not, the purpose is not to, exclusively talk about complaining. The bullseye of this chapter is not just understanding how we complain and we can connect with those who live way before us because we're no different. The bullseye of this passage is that this passage is teaching us the gospel. This passage is teaching us about our need for redemption and our need for salvation. This passage is teaching us about Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Hopefully we can get there. We, like God's people, as being illustrated in Numbers 11, we are so prone to look past the good things and focus on problems. We look past the good and we obsess on Faults. You do realize that our forefathers in the faith had been in captivity for 400 years? God had brought them out of captivity and brought them to Mount Sinai and lived with them and showed himself to them. And it was absolutely terrifying and beautiful and glorious. And they were together like that for a year Captivity 400 years, with God at the mountain for a year, and three days into that are complaining like this? They were not thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, do, do we realize that God is with us? Have we forgotten that he's brought us out of bondage? The answer would be obviously yes. Yes. They weren't celebrating those things about God. They weren't celebrating his presence with them. They weren't celebrating the miracle of having manna every day and the exact amount that they needed and God providing everything for them and the reality that he brought them out of Egypt when they could do nothing about it. They bypassed all of that to focus on, man, this. I'm tired of eating these honey-flavored crackers. I'm tired of eating this honey-flavored bread. I'm tired of all that. Aren't we the same way? We constantly look past the good things and focus on faults. And here's the point of the gospel, and here's the reality of Jesus. Jesus never minimizes our faults, and he still loves us. Take that in. We look past the good to fixate on the false and Jesus sees us as we are and is committed to loving us. He doesn't minimize sin at all. He doesn't just look past it. He sees it for more than what we see it as. He sees the totality of it and that does not deter him. He loves us. He has found a way and shows a way not minimize faults at all, to know them fully and still love. Matter of fact, it's even greater than that. It's not just that he sees your sin and my sin and how bad our attitudes are, how rebellious our actions are. He becomes our sin. You take that in? That Jesus sees you in your sin And he says, I will take your sin on me. I will take it. So whether you are a sexual failure or whether you can't get outside of obsessing over what everyone else has or does that you don't have or you feel like you can't do, Or all the idols that we have in our hearts. Or all the ways that we give glory to ourselves and therefore take God's name in vain. Or all the times when we choose to try to be defined by our working and being a workaholic as opposed to finding a balance between work and rest. Jesus has taken all of that onto himself. And he has laid down his life. And the reason he did that the reason he doesn't minimize your sin but takes it onto himself at the cross, the reason he does that is so that we can know the unconditional love of God. You see? God can love us unconditionally because of what Christ has done for us. God can love us unconditionally because Jesus doesn't minimize our sin but takes it on himself and endures the consequences of it so that God, through all of that, is loving us unconditionally. And that is powerful. That is transformative. You see, this passage is showing us why we need Jesus, and it's also showing us the transforming power of the work of Christ in our lives. That means this, if you will take the time and think about the things in your life that frustrate you, whatever's frustrating you right now, if you'll take the time to think about what's frustrating you and instead, this is what the power of Jesus enables you to do, instead of focusing on what's wrong with the other people, instead of focusing on what you wish you would have said or who you think you should be, Instead of focusing on those things, you can actually, by God's grace, learn to relate to others the way that God relates to you. And what that means is that we can, because of Jesus, it means that we can be the kind of people that others can fail in front of. It means we can be the kind of people that are sinned against. It means that we can be the kind of people that others can be honest with us, and we can be honest with them. You know, you have to understand that the fact that God's people would complain. At some level, you've got to recognize they felt that comfortable with God to express this complaint, as dramatic as it was and misplaced. And if the power of Christ is working in us, we can can take hard things. It also means that as a people, we can be bent toward forgiveness, bent toward grace and mercy. What I'm saying is, is that this can make us relational risk takers in which by God's grace, we can put ourselves out there And we can receive from others. And whatever mess comes from that, we can only think about how much of a mess we make of things. It means that the work of Christ really changes us into a people that are learning to fight against complaining all the time. And turns us into a people who are living lives shaped by grace. Because this is what Christ has done for us. Beloved, that's good news. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you're the only one who can get us out of our rut of complaining all the time. Maybe we even found out in new ways today how we complain and weren't even really thinking about it. But we thank you that you look at our complaining and you look at our sin, you look at everything, and you love us still. And you died and rose from the dead to change us so that we wouldn't continue to be like that all the rest of our lives. So we pray that you would continue to work your grace into us. Help us to be more like you. But beloved, don't leave here without knowing that God's blessing is on your life that what Jesus has done for you means something for your tomorrow. It means whatever you've got in your calendar, what you planned and what you haven't planned. One thing you need more than a good, clean calendar is God. And the one thing you need to make everything make sense of your calendar is God. So here's where he's promising to do that for you because of Jesus. If you want, you can raise your hands and act like you're receiving it because this is God's blessing to you. The Lord your God is going to bless you, and he is going to keep you. This week, his smile is upon you, and he is going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come, forever and ever, and even now, his presence will be with you. And one day, he will make peace. He will bring peace, and that means shalom. All because of our Christ. Amen. Go in his peace.